Good morning, fortune tellers, and welcome to the Fortune Teller Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan, and we are here to talk about how DeFi, NFTs, and the cryptocurrency industry at large goes mainstream. Today, I sit down with Jay Fraser, who is head of strategy at BSTX. BSTX is building the first blockchain-integrated national securities exchange. BSTX is powered by T0, their technology, and is jointly owned by Box Digital Markets and T0. Jay, so excited to have you on the podcast today. If you could, I would love if you could go into the backstory of what you were working on before you got into the crypto space. Yeah, sure, Ryan. Uh, really appreciate you having us on. Uh, everybody back at BSTX is a big, big fan of your show. So it's exciting to be here. And, and some really interesting things have happened for us in the last couple of weeks. So I'd be uh, happy to talk about them from a BSTX perspective. But personally, uh, I was uh, like an old school uh, trader, you know, in, in equity markets, right? You know, I came out of, came out of school uh, at Emory and I went into the training program at Lehman Brothers. And um, kind of while I was sitting there for four years in London and New York and San Francisco, kind of felt that, you know, the growth in, in technology, it was early days of the Internet, was going to kind of have an impact in that business. At, the moment, at that time, it was a very, very uh, labor intensive business, people on the floor, people trading on screens with one another directly. Uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of technology that was being brought to bear in that industry. So I switched to a one of the very first uh, trading institutional trading firms for equities. And I was there for actually 15 years. So I helped build out the US business from a product and sales and coverage perspective. And then I worked on Asia, Europe, Canada, Latin America, and really got to have a, a, a front row seat for that, you know, the, the really electronification of, of equity trading, whereas you probably all too well know that that's 100%, you know, electronic today, right? There's very, little, very, very little manual intermediation uh, between counterparties. A after that, I went to Citadel Securities for a little bit and helped uh, work on the market maker. Uh, and then I went to Deutsche Bank and ran all of electronic trading there for four years. So while I was at Deutsche Bank, I became a, a big fan of what um, uh, Ronan Ryan and Brad Katsuyama were doing at uh, IEX, which was the subject of Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys. And I went over there to help set up their, uh, was the very first head of business development for them. So really early days, pre-book, uh, the original of the book was just going to be a, an article in Vanity Fair. So we were actually totally surprised when it was that. But I will say that event catapulted my, my own personal story into so many different other subject matters because I've been pretty isolated for a long time on an equity, you know, kind of trading um, uh, journey. And, and all of a sudden now we had this national attention, you know, 60 minutes and, and uh, New York Times magazine article. So all these different participants started flooding into our collective inbox around ideas and things we could collaborate on. So it was really cool. And one of the things early on was uh, a couple of Bitcoin exchanges pitched us on being the backbone for their exchange. So at this time, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of institutional grade BTC trading, you know, it was, I mean, Ether, Ethereum at that point, it just about was a year away. I mean, we're talking 2014, right? So we didn't really feel like it was a, um, it was a great fit for us. You know, we're focused on the institutional marketplace and, and trying to, um, to, to help institute, you know, help big institutions navigate markets in a more fair way, if you're familiar with the book at all. But in any event, uh, that was my first exposure to, to Bitcoin and crypto. And I just kind of, and then I saw, uh, uh, the Winklevoss, uh, 
twins talking about it at a conference. And again, this was like early 14. And it just kind of like, I was a little bit like captivated. I'm like, okay, so is this kind of the same thing that I saw earlier in my career around electronification of trading markets? Is this something that's now going to, you know, radically change, you know, what the way markets operate? So for my ex, um, I went to uh, a small uh, options broker dealer, but that had a crypto broker dealer as part of it. So again, I just got a little bit more in crypto and T0, uh, I got introduced to uh, Sam Narcelli at T0 and he started telling me about what he was up to. And he mentioned, and, and the one thing that I kind of felt that was missing on the, in the, in the Bitcoin world is the, is this kind of lack of clarity around regulatory um, imprint, right. You know, and the ability for large institutions, cause they're highly limited about what venues they can trade on based on their mandate. Right. So he was talking about creating a digital ATS that would help feed listings into a brand new regulated token market. And that was BSTX. So that was a long story, but that's kind of my personal narrative on how I got from, you know, the trading floor for equities to, uh, to, you know, being in the, uh, what I really think could be revolutionary in terms of how uh, companies and, and legacy exchanges list companies and, 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 you know, we get tokenization and blockchain technologies fully into regulated markets. So hopefully that wasn't too much detail. <laughs> At the early days, was it obvious when you were just on the trading floor and the internet was just bubbling, was it obvious that the world of trading would become electronic? Oh, it was inevitable, right? I mean, you... You would see like, so here was the, here was the, um, the waterfall of a trade, right? Okay. So a portfolio manager at one of the big funds has an idea. He calls his trading desk on the phone. Then that guy picks up a phone and calls our trading desk. Let's say me as a sales trader. Then I pick up the phone and I call my position trader who then picks up the phone and calls the New York stock exchange. And then that all comes back in reverse. So the, the number of mistakes that are made with that many steps, you know, kind of, you know, naturally, like, you know, if you ever play the telephone game, right, you know, it's like the information you send down the pipe doesn't come back the same a lot of times. So it was absolutely, it was so crystal clear. Now, I wasn't really sure. I, I mean, it, by the way, the, the fact that markets are as electronic as they are today, that kind of surprised me. I didn't realize we'd get that far. But I mean, it was obvious that th this was, it's as obvious to me now about digital securities and how this is just a better model for capital formation. It's, it's just as obvious to me now about that as it was then about electronification. We think about DeFi. DeFi is all about this capital efficiency because the infrastructure removes those gaps where the errors could be made. I like to think of the, the mortgage process as one that's still kind of pen and paper. You're signing electronically and you can do everything digitally. But still, there are so many steps in the mortgage application from finding the house to actually closing and title being moved over. All of those steps in the same way are going to be Digitize on chain. It's going to be this world where the efficiency of that process can be can be brought to a whole new degree because the on-chain movement of money is so, so more efficient than that movement of, pay, of hands. Yeah. No um, when, when you're thinking about, I want to just dive a little bit into the days of the Flash Boys. Yeah. Uh, for the listeners who haven't read the books, Flash Boys is about high-frequency trading and how these high-frequency traders competed. And... I even I think in the book it talks about how the the faster wires or like the closer those like the types of wires they use to actually network data between funds and where the information was coming from gave them alpha mm -hmm. gave them an advantage. Mm -hmm. What was it like during those days before the book was written like those those real HFT high frequency trading days at the firm? 
Yeah, it was a kind of a, um, it was a, it was interesting because I think half the time we felt like we needed to get personal bodyguards because, you know, we were exposing this, this, uh, this somewhat travesty of, of finance where you have these big advantages for people that are willing to pay bigger fees to the data centers. And, you know, none of this is centralized at all, right? I mean, it's all in New Jersey, right? Uh, you know, there's no, and I mean, centralized in terms of like having the New York Stock Exchange, you know, nothing that that's a, that's a, that's a, you know, that's like a studio set, New York Stock Exchange, right? Nothing really happens there. So I think for us at the time, you know, uh, the principals, you know, Ronan and Brad had kind of uncovered this from Ronan's experience in data centers and Brad's trading. And I had spent both sides because working at Deutsche Bank, I was responsible for the product stacks, right? And um, so, I, you know, half the time we felt like we needed to have bodyguards and the other half the time we were like, you know, being, you know, getting all this, uh, you know, this attention from traditional media for uncovering this. Um, but it was, it was pretty exciting. And again, you know, the number of people, you know, that were, that, you know, were, we were in this tiny office in like, you know, a seven world trade center, right. You know, we we're all crowded desk on top of each other. And, but you get these crazy guests. Like I remember one day Steve Wynn came in, you know, and he just, he comes in, you wow. know, the casino magnet, right. And he comes in, he wants to invest in the company. Right. And then you'll look over and Michael Lewis is there, you know, doing some research on, you know, some change he wants to make in a, in a podcast himself or an article about the book. So it was incredibly exciting. I was really honored to be a part of it. And um, it was a great, it was a great four years. It really was. Wow, those are epic times and, and incredible stories. It feels, you know, there's an analogy to in the Silicon Valley world, the PayPal mafia, mm -hmm. where yeah. you had Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, uh, the founder of, of LinkedIn, all, all of these incredible entrepreneurs, they were on a mission to solve something. And I think time and time again, when you have some type of revolution, but disruption that a small group of very ambitious and intellectually driven people see, you have these kind of cult like areas where it's a small group, but the, the movers and shakers are all together at the same time. And we see that same movement in crypto today. Mm -hmm. When you enter the space and for new people joining the cryptocurrency space, you have you have pretty close access to those movers and shakers because everyone wants to collaborate and change the world in the way that we see fit, which is democratizing access to finance today as we know it. And it sounds like from those days, the HFT days, the Flash Boys days, it was a similar environment. Fast, fast forward to Bitcoin and you brought up the regulatory hurdles and your inspiration from the Winklevoss twins. Where do you see the analogies? Where do you see that same obvious need in the cryptocurrency world and we'll use that to you know get into bstx yeah sure um well i mean i think that you know anyone who is a student of both the traditional exchanges and the crypto exchanges know you can drive a truck between the technological uh you know uh stack that is that is afforded for each one of those respective exchanges right so you know i'm super excited about working to collapse that gap right so you you've got certain uh, DAOs and foundations that are listed on Coinbase along with all the cryptocurrencies, right? At some point, these are turning into companies, right? They're turning into, they want to, I'm no doubt about it. I'm sure there's conversations that the biggest, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say companies because it's overstating, you know, what they are, uh, but the, the cryptos that are listed on exchanges, I'm sure that they want to get broader institutional ownership, right? Especially if they're further in their rounds of financing, right? So, you know, I think that, um, you know, the thing that excites me the most is about bringing that gap. So there's fungibility, not necessarily like the same token will trade on multiple exchanges, right? You know, we're actually want to get, we want to 
dampen that as much as we can for uh, best execution reasons. But that, oh, hey, you know, I'm I'm on a crypto exchange. I look at BSTX and I see it's the same kind of technology. It's underpinned by blockchain. It's tokenization. Everything's immutable on my for record keeping. And I don't have to have a bunch of intermediaries actually support that with, you know, through the settlement and clearing process, you know, exchange handles everything. So that's essentially what you have in the crypto world, right? Immediately execution, 24 seven trading, you have, um, you know, interoperability uh, for, you know, settlement and instantaneous settlement. And, and, and then you flip over to the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, and, and it's almost like you flip the script, right? You've got, there's, you know, there's limited trading hours. There is short, high, longer settlement processes. There is, uh, there isn't as much transparency, but they, those markets have the blessing of the regulators. So that's where the institutional money goes, right? We're excited to continue to bring improvements to traditional finance. I mean, companies go public today on the, on, so I don't know if anyone's watching the Gilded Age bothers, you know, who bothers to watch that, but there's railroad companies, right? They go public the same way a hundred years ago as, as like the most innovative companies that today go public. It makes no sense. So you've had all this electronification and improvement in markets in the equity world. You have all this best and grade institutional grade technology that's been brought into crypto, but you've got this huge gap. So, you know, to answer your question, you know, what excites us is just narrowing that gap and helping these companies that need to stay like a lot of like young companies or series D financing. They need to go onto a traditional exchange to raise, you know, to raise capital, right? The crypto exchanges aren't really an answer for for traditional companies following an evolutionary of capital raise, right? Um, but I think they see the technology and they see the, like I said, the, the improvement in, in trading. And I think they want a venue that brings some of that to bear. So we're just trying to narrow that gap. Yeah, there's demand to launch tokens and have tokens be representing equity. But even in crypto, in the DeFi space today, like the way fundraisers are becoming more and more popular is that the team raises on equity first as a private entity. Mm -hmm. They raise on equity and then they attach either a token warrant, so the option for investors to receive tokens in the future, or they do some type of airdrop. Um, this is what Compound did. This is what Uniswap did. And it puts founders in a dilemma of understanding that the value capture will come from this token that governs some type of network. But mm -hmm. the regulatory uncertainty of when when it should happen, when should a founder release that token? And there are so many questions to be answered. When you're thinking about how to build this exchange, how do you bring in the regulatory aspects in a way that doesn't restrict this interoperability, as you spoke of, where tokens mm -hmm. can float freely and potentially retail or maybe maybe it's only institutional, but different flavors of investors have opportunities in the same way they would as, as a NASDAQ. Is it something where you're thinking about BSTX as a non-custodial exchange? Is it something that feels more custodial like Coinbase? Do you have mm -hmm. a crypto wallet or do you just have an account at the exchange? How are you thinking mm -hmm. about all these hurdles as they relay into both user experience and regulation? Yeah, those are, those are great questions. Uh, so, in order to actually get um, anything done, we had to launch what is, you know, kind of really a plain vanilla equities exchange right now, right? So our approval uh, three weeks ago is to operate an exchange that doesn't look any different than any of the other sixteen. Congratulations, and I want to say to the audience that yeah, is a major, that. major milestone. Yeah, it, it took it took about two and a half years, but I will say, you know, so we got rejected uh, in uh, to, to be a pure token exchange in December of twenty. 
And that was pretty depressing, right? Because we're like, you know, here's a, here's a time when, when crypto is taking over the collective imagination of the world. And so why can't we get, you know, why can't we get a little foothold for traditional finance via this? No different than DeFi is doing, right? Not discouraged. We did have some positive conversations with commissioners who said, you know what, there's some problems in the marketplace that, you know, you should you should address, right? So I'm sure you're familiar with Pith, which is, you know, which is distributing um, real streaming quotes on blockchain. So that is a non-exchange based functionary Pith, right? So they're actually doing it on behalf of a bunch of other participants. We got approval to have the very first exchange uh, domiciled blockchain delivery mechanism. It's the very first, right? On a traditional exchange side, right? Um, so that's exciting. So we've got the ability to short settle on our exchange. That's exciting. So to answer your question, how do we continue to narrow the gap? We have to just start down the middle, right? And so attract interest, traditional finance and attract interest from the more non-traditional finance. And, and the conversations that I have with both sides of that barbell are very positive because I think each side realizes that they're going to have to move a little bit to the middle in order for improvement for all, right? You see what's happening. I mean, the, the really strong, you know, I think durable, built to last uh, crypto exchanges are mo definitely moving in the regulated way. You know, they're buying they're buying derivative platforms which are highly regulated by the CFTC. They are um, they're becoming bedrock participants in markets and derivative markets. You know, while they're still operating their crypto exchanges, and they're also doing collective. Things, you know, that the, the, all the exchanges are SROs, right? They're self-regulatory organizations, right? And I feel like the crypto exchanges are starting to do that kind of stuff. Like in the last few weeks, you've seen, you know, Trust was launched. There's been a bunch of things coming out. So they're doing it, right? So when we talk to them, they're like, hmm, well, you know, we don't want to be, we don't want to go that far traditional, but we think you bring a really interesting element to, like I've said, like crypto uh, you know, listings that that maybe want more of a traditional listing. And then the traditional side's like, oh, we'd like to see some of the technology that crypto exchanges have. And, you know, we want to move a little bit that way. So we're, we're the only way we actually get this done is doing what we've been doing. It's just keeping down the regulated path, talking to everybody and getting kind of build a build an ecosystem. Right. Of support. Do you think more more crypto companies that lean more fintech and go this middle path will follow that path of being an SRO, a self-regulated organization? I think that if they want to expand their their reach to the institutional community, I think there is a responsibility that the exchanges have back to the community. So there's also these things like Reg SCI, if you're familiar with it, you know, system compliance and integrity. You know, as crypto exchanges become more institutional grade, there's going to be a big separate. I mean, what is it like 450 crypto exchanges, right? There's probably 10 that institutional investors will really think about trading on. Um, and, you know, and that doesn't that doesn't mean just U.S., right? I mean, this is really cool projects going on in exchanges around the world, like the Swiss digital exchange, you know, what's going on in, in Singapore that, you know, uh, I saw last week that um, that ETPs as represented as single asset platforms back in the U.S. here, like Solana, are going to be represented in Germany. So all those kind of projects are all the domain of exchanges that can be looked at from an from and by the way once you like go like so let's say i'm pitching uh let's say i'm at an exchange and i'm pitching an institutional investor he's going to ask all these questions about protection and um 
and you know how we run the exchange, you know, the, all that kind of stuff. So that I think to answer your question, yeah. And it actually reminds me, I didn't answer you. I didn't fully answer your question about how, if we're going to uh, support customer wallets. We're not because we're just going to be, we're, we're going to operate just like an institutional exchange does traditionally, right? So New York section, NASDAQ, don't domicile customer accounts. They're just a trading vehicle, right? Um, but since the crypto exchanges do domicile accounts and clear, you know, those conversations are going to have to be more direct. As the companies get bigger, they want to open accounts. Those kind of things, absolutely 100%, either SROs or, you know, a regulatory function. You know, FTX has talked about this, like having a regulatory function that that gives uniform, uh, you know, re regulatory, uh, you know, imprint across all the big exchanges. But I think you're going to see a winnowing. I mean, I think you're going to see the big exchanges kind of run away with that conversation and and the other ones, you know, be left um, left with what's left. So for, for crypto companies, and especially those that are, are fintech-y, but have blockchain as the, the back end, as we start seeing more and more of these companies, will BSTX be that place where they go to get a direct listing or they go to get public liquidity? Yeah, that's what we're really hopeful for, uh, Ryan. That's the goal. And that was the goal at the outset, right? Two and a half years ago, when we set off on this project, we're like, we want to give smaller companies who want to go public earlier Right. Okay. So you've got like back up for a second. Let me just give some macro stats here. Right. You've got about uh, forty five hundred public companies between the two big exchanges. Right. You've got over ten thousand companies that are past private companies that are past their D round of financing. Right. So typically, when you're at D, you're thinking about public markets. Right. Uh, if you go, if if a normal normalized company was to go list on a, a crypto exchange, right, you you you're not going to necessarily get. Uh, a lot of the biggest mutual fund complexes can't trade on exchanges that aren't regulated by the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. And, you know, they just can't, right? So you're limiting your access. So these companies have no choice but to look to the traditional exchanges for listing. The problem is it's expensive. You need a banker. You, you then pay high fees at these exchanges. And once you're there, you're kind of lost in the sauce, right? You're just another company that pays 30 grand a year to the exchange, don't get much out of it, and don't have a lot of a really good dialogue with their with their coverage. So we want to flip that. We want those companies to feel really good about being part of an exchange and then have rule filings that improve on their trading. So whether that is support of tokenization or it's support, we've also been working on uh, thinly traded securities. So, you know, there's a school of thought that small stocks spread across the 16 exchanges. It's just It's not a great mechanism for capital formation and liquidity. You know, we're going to work to try to get single exchange um, a single exchange would, you know, basically suspend UTP for certain thresholds of securities. That would be super popular for small companies because I think they look at the exchange landscape and they're like, I don't understand what's happening here. And that was a lot of the conversations we had at IEX because a lot of companies would call us up and they'd be like, hey, you know, you should build a listings market because we can't figure out what's going on when we call the New York Stock Exchange. So I guess there's the crypto companies or even the 10,000 that are still private, mm -hmm. but have just filed a a, reg, um, a series D. Mm -hmm. So they're getting ready for public listing that could be joining. It sounds like there's also an opportunity to take companies that are on these the, the smaller exchanges and move them over to the crypto world, tokenize those shares and move them over to BSTX. Which markets do you think you will target first? Well, since we only have the um, the approval to list companies that are just in traditional certificated form, I think it's probably going to be uh, some switches. Yeah, we're encouraging. You know, we're encouraged by switches. 
Also exchange traded products and structured products. So as you probably well know, in the tokenized world, the, the best use case so far has been real estate, right? And then the next one everybody says is equities, right? So if you saw the Arca Labs, you know, a few weeks ago, they had an institutional survey, 77% of people who responded to that said, yeah, you know, in the, within five years, you know, tokenization for equities makes a ton of sense, right? So we've just got to play the long game to be that regulated option once these companies you know, once it, once it is an option. So with, you know, we're going to launch in the, probably the third quarter, early the third quarter, you know, we're hopeful to have some exchange traded products or maybe a couple companies that are, you know, thinking, but we have to, we have to actually get started and then it becomes an option. You know what I mean, Ryan? Because people can't trade on theoretical exchanges, right? It has to be a real operating exchange. And so to that end, you know, we're a big boy exchange. Like we have direct feeds in NY4, which is Equinox, which is the data center. You know, we have, like I said, Reg SCI is, is part of our core tenants. You know, we have a responsibility back to the public markets of not failing them, right? Not going down, not having poor tech. And I think that that's, we talked about that a couple of minutes ago about crypto exchanges. I think they're going to have to make that same, they're going to have to have that same burden of proof as more institutional investors start gravitating towards those assets. And by the way, hugely bullish on, you know, this, those worlds continuing to overlap, um, collaborative investment way, you know, I, I think there's so much opportunity. It's, it's super exciting time. You mentioned the time frame too. Yeah, being there over the next five years, crypto is a market where it feels like nothing's happening, nothing's happening. And then all at once yeah, the faucet right. just turns on. Yeah. And I, I'm foreseeing that same world happening here where once certain adoption paths are hit, there's approval, you're just going to see a flurry of people entering the space. And 2021 was crypto coming to the table, was our industry was at the table with equities. It was a part of the conversation in a meaningful way that wasn't here four years ago, even though Bitcoin and Ethereum were, were at the foresight or at the onset of the public markets. Um, this is a little bit of a transitionary question, but yeah. leading a little bit more crypto, as you mentioned DAOs in the earlier stages, my question will be, how do you think they come into play from a securities exchange? I think there's the world of REITs that can be built atop of the Wyoming DAO structure mm -hmm. where you can wrap the real estate in the LLC and the LLC is tokenized or the shares of the LLC. You have DeFi DAOs that, as you mentioned, while they may have tokens, that doesn't mean that the entity doesn't have employees. There are DAOs that employ more than 50 people. Mm -hmm. And um, it's wild to think because three years ago, that was, wasn't even a concept. So when you think of DAOs coming to fruition, and this is more of a DeFi native uh, approach, how will they be listed? How do you think they'll come to play in the world of BSTX? So there's and your, your point about okay, nothing changes, nothing changes. And then overnight, everything changes and everybody's got to pivot, right? So the Howie test is going to come into play over time, right? So that basically goes back about 100 years. It's basically is a, is a pool of securities, a security in and of itself, or is it just a pool of securities, right? A pool of assets, right? So, you know, like you said, some DAOs have hundreds of employees. They have a management team. Uh, now they they wrap themselves in this decentralized fashion, but in reality they operate a lot like you know. There's a de facto CEO, maybe he doesn't call himself that, right? But they operate a lot like companies. That is the purvey of the SEC, full stop. And I think that that sea change you're talking about could come if a forest fire burns through that group of companies from a perspective like you're a security, right? 
you're not. So you either have to delist wherever you're trading and relist in a regulated uh, form, or you have to, you know, take, you know, be completely private and you have to delist, you know, all your tokens. Right. So to your, you know, to your point that, you know, nothing changes and then everything changes. That's an everything change moment. Now, I also don't think that SEC is going to throw the baby out with the bathwater and do that in a way that, you know, people are, you know, there's risk to the firms or to the people or to the investors. But, uh, you know, we want to be an option uh, to have a token market where they could delist from a, from a, from a non-traditional exchange and then relist in token form on a regulated. Interesting. So it, the idea with the Howey test will be if it looks like a company and acts like a company, it's probably a security because you're betting on a group of people to do something. And that stock is betting for that stock price to go up based on those actors, so centralized mm -hmm. actors. Mm -hmm. And there's an opportunity where BSTX can provide that roadmap where you could delist off of some of the exchanges that don't fit the criteria and relist on BSTX to be compliant. And there's that world and for our listeners that are builders out there where you have a continuous, you have a path to adoption. And what's exciting is for your growth, it may feel all at once. There may be, you know, some of these companies that start as DAOs and then reorganize. And that could be fine from a regulatory perspective and from a builder perspective. When you think about mainstream adoption and these more native crypto companies coming on board onto BSTX and following that path in the middle, as, as you've been explaining, do you think that that adoption will come from non-crypto traders and institutions coming over, like new money, new capital coming onto BSTX? Or will it be those who are already in crypto bringing their assets and their trading volume over to BSTX because there's this new world that's regulated and feels more like securities that they can yeah. play in? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's both. I really do. And that's what gets us excited about. Like I keep saying kind of we're right in the middle, sitting right in the middle between these two ecosystems, right? That are distinct, but really that run in parallel, but they really should have way more. Uh, there should be way more lines, bright lines of, of similarness, right? Where so that the, the Dow delisting uh, from a crypto exchange coming over to a regulated exchange, that's a that's an awesome moment, right? You now are accessing so many more investors than you did before. Right. And your broad ownership is just going to is be exponential in the world that we live in today. So, you know, and so we've still got to work through with the SEC what that would look like. And again, to your point earlier about, you know, everything, nothing changes and then everything changes. If we got approval to operate a token market, every other exchange would then file to do that. Every other regulated exchange, the NASDAQ, New York Stock Exchange, BATS, the whole lot would. So a lot of people say, oh, everything's going to go digital. Well, it's, you know, like IBM is not going to turn into a token, right? It's not going to benefit them. But the companies you're talking about, the next evolution for the last hundred years has been to go public. Um, they're quasi public. So this is an opportunity then for them to go fully public. Um, but I think the growth is going to come from both sides. I mean, you see tons of, you know, cross, uh, cross world collaboration, right? You know, whether it's from a an investing perspective, early stage, uh, you know, JP Morgan's like one of the biggest investors now across the board in, in blockchain and, and maybe less so crypto, but certainly in blockchain, uh, they're hedging their bets, right? So I think a lot of people will continue to hedge their bets by moving over whatever part of their organization makes sense. So is it okay, clearing, you know, we should explore clearing on blockchain and maybe, you know, and that's already like, so digital assets via 
the work that R3 and, and Corda are doing, you know, there's an off and on ramp for people that trade certificated securities, but want to settle digitally and or trade digital and want to settle cert- certificates. So DTCC, to their credit, with their uh, collaboration, with their rate, they're way ahead of the game here. Like the, the backbone is built. It's just we don't have the front end yet. So I think there's going to I think the growth is going to be, uh, you know, going to come from both sides of those 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 um, worlds. And mainstream adoption happens step by step, uh, as you're describing with JP Morgan and their investment in the infrastructure first, step by step, they're approaching the blockchain world. And in their eyes, if blockchain is this big win, they're putting a bet on it. But if it doesn't, it, it's still infrastructure. There are still capabilities that blockchain can offer that are meaningful to their business. And I would love if the world that we think of in the blockchain space and DeFi of open finance and decentralized finance, we want to democratize individuals' access to this ownership economy. And part of being a, being in a DAO is you get to vote. You can vote on uses of treasury. You can vote on actions or decisions of this what this DAO owns. And the ability to then merge that with something that feels more like a stock, I think will be an incredible experience for not only the crypto community, but also for those institutional investors that today with public companies and and retail investors, they can only vote on the board. They don't vote on decision making. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's going to be a really interesting shift as we start seeing this blend. We always like to ask a final question on the podcast, and that is, if you had a crystal ball in front of you right now, what could you most confidently predict will happen in DeFi? And when I speak of DeFi, more from the macro sense of where DeFi fits into this regulatory world, what do you think will happen and what could you predict will happen in DeFi by the end of this year? So I think that you know the, the industry as a whole, DeFi included, has a real opportunity to broaden, like you said, the de- democratization and, and it's really democratization of early stage assets, right? So if you think about when Microsoft went public or Oracle or, you know, time, you know, when uh, AOL, like Steve Case tells this great story that he used to have people follow him around in Reston, Virginia and thank him for sending his kids to school because they bought AOL when it first went public, right? You know, if you look at the IPO market now, it's kind of a, you know, kind of a island of broken toys, right? I mean, none of these stocks trade that well once they go public. So I think that, you know, taking the crystal ball out, I think that there is a realization, you know, when we have questions with no matter what, what participant they are in the world, there's a realization that companies are, aren't going public early enough and there's not enough being done to help that. You know, there's the jobs act, there's all these things that have been done. So my crystal ball would be prediction would be that the entire ecosystem continues to work towards getting companies to go public earlier. And if that's crypto technology that does that, or if that's traditional technology or traditionally regulated markets, but that those two come together in pilot programs, you know, via, you know, uh, projects like ours, uh, or getting, you know, the ability for other companies to be on, you know, more company-like companies to be listed on crypto exchanges, whichever way it goes, but I would say that is is gonna. That's I think that that's inevitable because the demand for assets, right? If you think about the world, that yeah, we've got like sixty percent of the you know certain class of of demographic owning uh, crypto right now. But you know what that means? They probably own some BTC, right? You know they don't own Solana, they don't own Avalanche, they don't own Cardano, they don't own you know Audius. These companies are doing 
sorry, DAOs or foundations, they're doing really awesome, cool things, right? That the majority of the people are not invested because they, they have no access to it, right? So crystal ball is that the world wakes up from the regulated side and says, you know what, we need to give access more early, tries to find projects like us to work with through that process and, and provide access to more people, frankly. BSTX is going to be a leader in this world. And I, I love this opportunity that we as an industry and BSTX as a platform can bring to the retail investor where maybe they actually did get to back Airbnb in the early days. They didn't just have to have ownership exactly right. yep. when they went public. Jay, thank you for joining us. Where can our listeners find out more about you and more about BSTX? So we're, uh, you know, we have a website, bstx.com. And I, I think all of our embedded links are there about, you know, uh, you know, any of our social and, and also even our, uh, there's an info at bstx too, that would, that emails the entire team. Uh, and then the person that has the right, uh, the right, a uh, skill set to, to follow up, whether it's an issuer or a participant, or just a curious, we get people all the time, uh, sending us emails to invest in tokens, but we haven't launched a token. So we, we don't have that yet. But yeah, love to hear from anybody who's got an interest in this space. Head over to BSTX, follow Jay. There's no tokens yet, but tokens will be coming. Wherever you're listening to this, be sure to check out the show notes for all the links Jay mentioned in our conversation. And of course, please follow us on Twitter. We are at Teller, or join our newsletter to find out about our upcoming episodes. 